Thank you, Hannah, for your uh, gift this morning to us, and your offering of your gift to, to God in worship. We appreciate that, and um, it helped bring all of us uh, in worship together. Our scripture this morning is a cause for celebration. It is the reason for hope. It is a lifeline for those who are perishing. It's like the scenic mountain view at the end of a difficult hike. It's like the resounding note that a piece of music has been crescendoing towards. It's like finally arriving at the beach after a long drive. And it is for this reason that I won't be reading it at the beginning of the message this morning. Yes, this goes against what we normally do, and I'm going to ask that none of you call any of my seminary professors and tell them. Hopefully they won't see it on Facebook. Because we're supposed to read it at the beginning. But for this scripture to hit us with the overwhelming joy that it deserves, we need to take a journey to get to it together. So The story begins with the state of the Christian church in Rome. After the death and resurrection of Jesus the news spread throughout the Roman Empire about what had happened. And all over the place, Jewish people began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And the gospel spread and spread. And along the way, there were non-Jewish people, or Gentiles, who began to also believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they were kind of included into this new movement within Judaism. This was also the case in Rome. But then something strange happened in Rome that didn't happen everywhere else. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jewish people out of Rome. They had been uh, debating between them about Jesus. Was he the Messiah? Was he not the Messiah? And to, to the Roman officials, they were all Jewish people, regardless of what they believed about Jesus. And so they were all expelled together out of Rome, which left behind the Gentile believers, who still together made up the church in Rome, just now without the Jewish believers with them. This is a unique situation. The church did not just pause for those years that the Jewish people were gone. They continued on. Five years later, the emperor died, and Jewish people were once again welcomed back in Rome. You can imagine that this caused a little bit of conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, because for those five years, they had figured out how to do church. And now the Jewish believers are coming back. And there's conflict about how to exist together and how to be the church together. And so there began to be these two factions within the church in Rome. Scholars pretty much agree that the uh, letter of Romans was written by Paul shortly after the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. One of the reasons they agree about this is because Paul is clearly addressing the conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. 
And this morning, uh, we're going to kind of lay out one of those problems. And we're going to trace it through the first several chapters of Romans. Now, if you were uh, in Rome at the time that this letter arrived from Paul and at one of those churches, somebody would have stood up and read the whole thing in its entirety. We're doing 45-minute worship services right now, so I'm not going to read the entire letter of Romans to you. But we are going to kind of zoom through and hit some key points for, for this main point that we're going to come to in a chapter in a little bit. We're going to keep that uh, in, in suspense for a moment. So when the Jewish Christians came back, there was this immediate conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Right off the bat, the hearers of this letter would realize, oh, this is not just a friendly how are you doing letter from Paul. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven is pretty strong language. And it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. It's not hard to imagine the Jewish hearers of this letter saying, see, Paul's on our side. These Gentiles don't even know the truth of God and his laws. They're suppressing the truth by their wickedness. But Paul continues. In chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. That word condemn is a word we're going to come back to, so remember it. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Down in verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul says, There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul is beginning to level the playing field between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the following verses under that, Paul explains that the Jews are condemned under the law because they have not obeyed the law. And then in chapter 3, there's what looks like in our English Bibles a little poem, maybe constructed by Paul. It's actually seven different Old Testament quotes put together to form this beautiful um, description of the current reality of the church in Rome. Paul says this through these Old Testament quotes, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. And then down in verse 23 he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God. That's one of those verses in Romans that often gets quoted. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is really now leveling the playing field. While one group was trying to condemn the other, Paul seems to be saying, Hey, you're both condemned. All humanity is condemned. So now the church is unified in Rome. Under this 
pretty negative reality that together they are all under condemnation. In chapter 4, Paul goes on to address an issue that he knows is going to come up. Because surely the Jewish Christians would now want to point to some of their heroes of the faith to say, but not everyone is condemned, Paul. Surely not like Abraham or David. These people were clearly righteous. It's in our own scriptures. But Paul, anticipating this move, turns to Abraham and David and explains clearly that they are declared righteous, not because of their actions, but because they had faith in God. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Down in verse 6, it says, So also David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. See, even the heroes of the Old Testament Jewish faith, their righteousness was not their own. But it was given to them because of their faith in God. If this has always been true, then it's true now for the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Righteousness is not based on how closely the law has been followed, but based on faith. So now the barrier between Jew and Gentile is firmly broken down. Paul sets up a different distinction between people. The determining factor is not whether you are Jewish or a Gentile. But for Paul, it all goes back to two people, two individuals. In chapter 5, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. The first man is Adam, and through him all are now in sin. The other man is Christ. In verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. See, justification is the opposite of condemnation. And through this man, justification comes for all. Notice that inclusive word whether Jew or Gentile. Also notice that it says the many will be made righteous in verse 19. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is a passive verb. It's something that is being done to people, not something that they themselves are doing. Someone else is performing the action. It is Christ who is making them righteous. Well, this comes as welcome news to the hearers of this letter. Because there's been so much condemnation talk. To hear now that Christ can make another righteous is good news. But it leads to a little bit more confusion. I imagine the hearers saying, well, Paul, are we condemned or not? 
You know, what role will sin continue to play in my life? As a way to clarify this confusion that Paul knows is coming, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. He anticipates the questions that the, the, the readers of the letter, that the hearers of the letter will have, and asks them himself. He says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin? Should we continue in sin? I'm getting some, not, some, some shakes in here. Hopefully, those of you watching at Facebook at home are also saying no. Should we continue in sin? No, we should not continue in sin. That's Paul's answer in verse 2. By no means. But it's, important, it's an important question that we should continue to think about. Let me ask you this time rhetorically, if you'd like. How many of you believe that you will reach a point in this life when you will cease to commit intentional sin? Now, I'm not asking who thinks they'll never make a mistake, but who believes they will no longer commit a willful, intentional sin? Just think about that for a minute. Guess what? This is a core belief of the United Methodist Church. This is one of the things that got John Wesley in so much trouble in the Anglican Church. Because he preached a sermon called Christian Perfection. And this is one of the many scriptures that, that Wesley would have referred to when Paul seems to clearly be saying here that the baptized Christian no longer lives in sin. He continues to kind of play with the confusion that he must be causing in the Romans. In chapters 6 and 7, Paul seems to have a lot of fun teasing out this tension between the idea that all are condemned, yet all will be justified, with one main problem in between them. How do we deal with sin? And now we come to the famous passage from Romans chapter 7. Christians have found themselves deeply connecting with this paragraph for a long time. Chapter 7, verse 15, and the few verses after it. I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Remember that word, dwells. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Christians often feel this same sort of back and forth between a deep desire to obey God and be faithful to the good that He desires for us and a constant pull towards temptation to sin. We feel this back and forth. Sadly, for many Christians, this is the end of the story. For many churches even, this is a description of the Christian life. I get the appeal. I do. This paragraph in Romans 7 is probably the paragraph 
that most closely matches my personal experience. But we're not meant to stop after reading chapter 7. Paul does not mean for us to to stop reading this letter. Paul does not mean for us to, to stop on this journey right here. Paul does not mean for us to connect with this dilemma and simply live in the tension between sinning but not wanting to sin. In chapter 7, we are only part of the way through Paul's story that he's telling to the Romans and to us. Yes, Christ has justified all who have faith, but there's not yet anything in this story that rescues the believer from continued sin. And now... Now we come to chapter 8. At long last, we come to the scenic mountain view at the end of the long hike. We hear the climactic note in the symphony that Paul has written. In chapter 8, verse 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. Several times throughout the book of Romans, chapters begin with the word therefore. There's this constant building on foundations that Paul is setting in his logical arguments. But when we get to chapter 8, we get there is therefore now. It's kind of redundant. He's emphasizing a main point is coming. The solution to the problem is here. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only that, the law of the Spirit has set you free. We, at the beginning of the service, sang together, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. 
alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And can it be? Christians, we have no condemnation now to dread. Through our baptism, we have taken part in the death of Christ. Our sinfulness has been condemned and put to death. And more than even that, as good as that is, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of life, comes and bring us, brings us new life. And this new life is not meant to be another life like the old. It's not meant to be lived in the back and forth between sinfulness and godliness. We are meant to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And to be clear, I preach this morning not out of personal experience. The message I preach is not born out of an inward gaze of my own defeat over sin. It is a message that Paul speaks to the Roman church. And it is my confidence that this truth revealed by God through Paul is true for me and is true for you. That our life that has died in Christ has been raised again and given the Spirit to dwell in us. Sin can no longer dwell in us because the Spirit has taken its place to dwell within us. How easy is it for us in the church to continue to put up divisions between us the way the believers in Rome did. Paul broke those barriers down and instead reminded us that we are on the side of the condemned. All of us. But we've been offered new life that we do not deserve. The scripture this morning is a reminder that apart from Christ and His Spirit of life, we all stand condemned. Not one of us is righteous or holy. Yet the Spirit within us takes our life wrecked by sin and death and breathes new life into us, empowering us to set our minds on Him and to walk in that newness of life. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this journey through Romans. We thank you for the message that Paul preached. We thank you for this reminder that not one of us is righteous on our own. And it is only Jesus who can make us righteous, not by our works, but because of faith. And now, God, we pray that you will continue to empower us with your Spirit. We pray that your Spirit will dwell in us. That the Spirit will empower us to resist temptation to sin. And that you will be glorified in that we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.